Psalms 119. Last week, I introduced you to an African-American pastor by the name of Lumanuel Haynes. And I think it is good for us as a church to know to some degree our church history, a little bit of our church history. And the reason why is because I believe that as we understand church history, it helps us to see the shoulders on which we are standing on. It helps us to be encouraged by our brothers and sisters. We see something like this in the book of Hebrews as he is encouraging them to press on in the faith. He reminds them of a great cloud of witnesses before them that, 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 that kept pressing on in the faith, although at times it was difficult. And this morning, I want to introduce you to another historical church figure by the name of William Tyndale. Everybody say William Tyndale. William Tyndale. William Tyndale was known for singing one note. He wanted the Bible to be translated into English. Tyndale desired nothing more than for the Bible to be translated from its original language, which was Hebrew and Greek, so that every person in England would be able to read the Bible. Due to Tyndale's passion for an English translation, it would bring tremendous trials in his life. Tyndale lived in a time when an English translation of the Bible was completely forbidden. His opposition was so great he would face conflict with the king himself at the time, who was King Henry VIII. Tyndale had found himself in exile for seven years from his homeland, no safety for his life. So Tyndale had to flee from England uh, in safety for his life. Mr. Tyndale was willing to return to his homeland and suffer whatever consequences lay before him on one condition. If the king would just authorize a translation of the English Bible, here's his words. I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of the scripture, that is, without explanatory notes, to be put forth among his people, like as is put forth among the subjects of the imperial in these parts, and of other Christian princes, be it of the translation of what person soever should please his majesty. I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more, not abide two days in these parts after the same, but immediately to repair unto his realm and there most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer whatever pains or torture, yea, what death his grace will, so this translation be obtained. Endure my life, I will abide the prosperity of all chances. Whatsoever shall come and endure my life in as many pains as it is able to bear and suffer. It's clearly this is old English. In other words, Tyndale would give himself up to the king on one condition, that the king authorized an English Bible translated from Greek and Hebrew, which is the original language of the Bible, and the common language of the people. The king refused, and Tyndale never went to his homeland again. Instead, if the king and the Roman Catholic Church would not provide a printed Bible in English for the common man to read, Tyndale would, even if it cost him his life, which it did five years later. 
Tyndale was so on fire for God's word that he was willing to face opposition against the powers that be during his day, which was the king in the Roman Catholic Church. There was once, uh, Tyndale was once having dinner with a, with a Catholic scholar, um, and the Catholic scholar made a, con a comment to Tyndale. He said, we were better without God's law, a.k.a. God's word, than the Pope. In response, Tyndale, this dude, this dude has some courage on him. In response, Tyndale spoke his famous words. I defy the Pope in all his laws. If God spares my life many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow should know more of the scripture than thou does. In other words, you give me enough time and the regular man is going to know more scripture than the Pope himself. On fire. In 1534, William Tyndale will complete his revised version of his English translation of the New Testament. This Bible was smuggled into England and was spreading like wildfire. It was for the first time the New Testament, listen to this, it was for the first time the New Testament was translated into English and available in print. I want you to understand where you get your English Bible from. This is no small thing. Prior to this, the only translation available to people was the Latin Vulgate, and few people could understand it. Before he was martyred in 1536, Tyndale had translated into clear common English not only the New Testament, but also the Pentateuch, Joshua to 2 Chronicles, and Jonah. All this material became the basis of the great Bible issued by Miles Coverdale in England in 1539 and the basis for the Geneva Bible published in 1557. So you go to a hotel, you said Geneva Bible. You got a little bit of where that came from, all right? That's the nation's Bible, which sold over a million copies between 1560 and 1640. Many of us fail to understand that most of what we read in the KJV was translated by William Tyndale. He is responsible for translating famous scriptures such as, let there be light in Genesis 1-3. I am, I, am I my brother's keeper? I know you guys know that one really well. Genesis 4-9. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5-4. He also translated the famous verse, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Matthew 6, 9. William Tyndale loved God's word. He suffered much, even the pain of seeing others, watch this, burned alive for reading the Bible he translated. In England, you were burned alive if you were caught reading God's word. Tyndale would be put to death for translating God's word in 1536. He was, buried, uh, he was betrayed by his friend and, and those led to authorities. He spent the last few months of his life in prison, and those last months were extremely hard for him. And I want you to hear his words, his final words in, in prison, at least uh, the bit that we have. He says, once again, it's in Old English, so bear with it. I beg your lordship, that of the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the the commissary, to have the kindness to send me from the good of mine which he has, a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head, 
and am afflicted by a perpetual cathar, which is much increased in this cell, a warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt. If he would be, be good enough to send it, I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above, and he, he, he has also a warmer nightcap. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening, for it is indeed wearisome sitting along in the dark. Now watch this. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commensary, that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible Hebrew grammar in the Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient abiding the will of God. To the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may ever direct your heart. Understand that Tyndale is suffering tremendously, but his hard affection is still to translate God's word. Now, we don't know if his request was actually granted. He did stay in prison through the winter. His verdict was sealed in August 1536. He was formally condemned as a heretic and degraded from the priesthood. He was tied to the stake and then strangled by the executor then afterwards consumed in the fire. Fox's reports that his last words were, Lord, open the king of England eyes. He was 42 years old, never married, and was never buried. The Bible that you hold in your hand did not come to you easily, church. Church, William Tyndale's life reminds us of how precious God word truly is. And I can't help but to believe that William Tyndale didn't only write the word, but he hid the word in his heart. He saw the beauty in the treasure of God's word. Even in his final hours, he longed only that others would be able to enjoy the truth of scriptures. Church this morning, it is my hope to remind you of the immeasurable value of God's word. And my hope is for many of you that the value of the Bible would be restored or birthed in your soul. That we would truly understand the words of our Savior when he says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And in spite of the mockery and disdain this nation has for God's word, we have found, church, that it is the lifeline for us, the inerrant, authoritative, incomprehensible, profound, prolific, yet simple Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God has been our lifeline. And it is my hope this morning that God would birth in us this sort of tenacious, heart-wrenching, relentless Jeremiah fire set up in my bones, desire in our hearts for His Word. The sort of desire that wakes you up in the middle of the night just for a a taste of Scripture. It is my conviction that there is no other text in all of the Bible that expresses the importance of the believer delighting in God's Word like Psalms 119. 
We have before us today what has been described as the Mount Everest or the Grand Canyon of Psalms. Think anything that is the biggest, and you can apply that to Psalms 119. If you know anything about Psalms 119, it by itself is longer than 30 books of the Bible. Nearly half of all, that's nearly half of all the books in the Bible. It is twice as long as any other psalm. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. And so you're thinking, how long is this sermon going to be? <laughs> well, buckle in. No, we're not going through all 176 verses. The way I like to see Psalm 119 is a beautiful grove of fruit trees. We could just fly over, overhead and look down at this 176 trees and look down and say, oh, that's a beautiful grove of fruit trees. Or we can land the plane and walk through this grove of fruit trees and pick two or three of them and enjoy the fruit and savor it. In other words, instead of trying to consume the whole thing, it is best we just enjoy a few. Slow down and meditate on just a few of them. And I pray that as we walk through this beautiful fruit grove, we would slow down and pray that God would transform our lives. It is my encouragement that every Sunday morning you walk into the building, you should be praying, God, as your word is preached, do something new in me. Create something new in me. Show me something new about yourself. That ought to be our prayer every time we walk in the building. So church, for the next 30 minutes, we would look away from ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus. So we're going to be here a little bit, so kick off your heels and let your hair down. and Let's go through this beautiful fruit grove. Let's do a brief tour first through Psalms 119 so that we can understand a little bit of its background. There are a few things we need to understand before we dive in. Number one, Psalms 119 has no author. No one knows who exactly wrote it. And it's maybe like the stone hinge. It's best that this masterpiece is anonymous and simply admired on its own merit. It's called a Torah psalm because it points to the value of the Torah or what we call God's word. When Psalm 119 was written, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible... Genesis through Deuteronomy was the law. It was the Bible at the time. Five books was all they had. Everything this psalm praises about God's word is about the first five books of the Bible. Today we have 61 more books. Can you imagine how long this psalm would be if he had all 66 books? Bible would be about this big, right? Need a cart to wheel it in. Every verse except a few includes at least one reference to God's word. It is the Torah psalm of all Torah psalms. I also find the location of Psalms 119 interesting. It is very, very close to, the, to being the exact center of the Bible. The longest section or chapter of the Bible is at the center of the Bible. Any coincidence that the center of the Bible is about the Bible being the center of our lives. Psalms 119 can be broken up into seven categories. Number one, the law, instructions. Number two, it can be broken down into testimonies, what God solemnly testifies to be his will. 
Number three, it can be broken down into precepts, what God has appointed to be done. Number four, it can be broken down into the statues, what the divine lawgiver has laid down. And number six, it can be broken down into the commandments, what God has commanded. Numbers, and no, I'm sorry, I mixed that up. That was number five. You probably already caught that, like this guy can't count. Uh, number six, the rules, what the divine judge has ruled to be. And number seven, word, what God has spoken. Let us approach one of our first fruit trees. We're going to park our plane at verse 18. And it says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. First thing that we see is, is it is important that we see and understand God's word. Church, what I love about this particular verse is it shows us the importance of prayer in the word. Prayer in the word can be seen as railroad tracks that keeps your soul moving in the right direction. We often think that we can just approach God's word and open it up and, and understand it without any dependency on him. But in this verse, he shows us that it is important we ask God for grace to understand his word. We even see in Jesus' time on earth, he had to open their minds and their hearts to understand God's word. Listen to Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. It is the Lord's desire for you to desire to understand his word. And hear me clear on this. If you ask God to help you understand his word, that prayer will not go unanswered. God will allow you to understand his word. But we are so prone to ask for so many other things, church. God send me a husband. God bless me with more money. God caused her hair to fall out. God show my God let that marinate for a minute. God show my wife that I'm right. That usually goes unanswered. But we ask 10,000 things of God. God give me the next promotion at the job. However, there is nothing that delights the heart of our God that when his children ask for their eyes to be open so they can hear and comprehend the immeasurable truth of his word. No one can see the treasure in God's word with natural eyes. See, there's a, a seeing words on a page and then there's seeing the glory in the scripture. That's not to say one can't construe the surface meaning. That's not what I'm saying. But that they can't see the glory in the text. It's one thing to state the meaning. It's another thing to see the glory. The psalmist says, open my eyes. Now, this can only infer one thing, that there's something he cannot see. There's beauty he cannot see in his own strength. He is reading his word, but he's missing it. Have you ever felt that way? Let's be honest this morning. I'm going to be super holy every time I open the word. God gives me a divine revelation. <laughs> Pump your brakes. It's a guy in the Bible saying he doesn't understand it. All right? But have you ever felt this way? God, I'm reading your word, but I'm coming up blank. My friend told me to go read the Bible and I'll see better. My pastor told me to go read the Bible for my marriage and I'll feel a little bit better that I'll see something. But I'm reading and I don't see anything. It's kind of like the guy with, with, with taste buds and the guy with no taste buds. 
The guy with no taste buds, he's, he's going through the function of eating, but he's not enjoying any pleasure. And so is God. But God, we want our taste buds to be awakened so that we can taste the word of God. Because reading the word without taste buds is, is boring and frustrating. And oh, I wish we would be a church that cries out, God, open my eyes. Last Tuesday at the Young Adult Bible Study, uh, we normally uh, walk through Scripture in an exegetical way. And uh, Joseph was leading, and he slowed us down. And he said, we don't want to just read through God's Word. We want to comprehend it. We want it to change us. So let's pause at some of these Scriptures and just pray that God would open our eyes so that we can see what he has to say to us. You need God to give you eyes to see like Balaam. Now, many of you might not know who that is, but the verb open here is the same one used in the, in the Balaam story where the Lord opened Balaam's eyes so he can see the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. Watch this. Then the Lord opened, his, opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his, with, with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. So understand this, church. Here's Balaam. He's headed to his destination. The angel is in the road. He cannot see him. It's not that the angel is not there because he can't see him. He's there whether he sees it or not. In the same way, there is glory in God's word, whether you see it or not. The issue is not with the word of God. The issue is with you. It is with your heart. It is your sinful nature that blinds you from seeing the glory of God's word. But if you have been born again, understand God has given you eyes to see. That is spiritual eyes. But understand that your spiritual eyes are in need of maturing so that you can see and understand the word of God. This is why Paul says in Ephesians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and watch this, in of what? Revelation. In the knowledge of who? In the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. There's some two different scenes going on. There's this physical scene, and then there's this scene with the heart. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Understand, church, clearly this morning that God's word is precise and it is clear. The only reason why we can't understand it sometimes is because of ourselves which is why we need God to remove the veil in our souls and the issue does not lie with his word. The question I have is, why do you want God to open your eyes? He says, God, open my eyes. Not so that I can see the husband you have for me or I can see the job you, that's not why he says open my eyes. He wants to behold the wondrous things out of the law. That's why he wants his eyes to be open. The psalmist realizes he's not seeing the beauty of God, but we can tell that he has seen the beauty of God at some point. There are times in your Christian walk where you're going to see things in the text, 
and God's word is going to be joyful to you. And then there's going to be times when you're reading the word and it's not going to be as joyful. That doesn't mean that you give up. You keep pressing on in prayer. He knows that there is a treasure inside of God's word. The reality is, is that there are beauties in God's word that when we see them, we are never the same ever again. When you see beauty in God's word, it is going to change you. It's going to change you. And many of us can testify to such an experience. You may have been at your local Starbucks and you're drinking your coffee and you crack open your Bible and, and all of a sudden you say, oh, my, 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 I, I've never, I never, I never seen that before. And you call up your homegirl or you call up your homeboy and say, I got to tell you what God showed me in the word this morning. And you begin to convey to them what you heard. And all of a sudden you, under, you understand that they're not as excited as you are. They're like, I wish you just pumped it. Calm down. Calm down. That, that, that's the coffee talking. That ain't God. That's, that's, that's the coffee talking. But let us not be discouraged when God reveals more of his word to us and people or the world around us do not understand. When Moses came off of the mountain from spending time with God, he came off, and I love this, it said his face was shining. I'm like jealous of Moses in that moment. Like, man, I want to go, go on top of the mountain, but I'm scared of height. So, um, but I want to go on top of the mountain and I want to come down with my face shining. And he comes down with his face shining and the people like... Put a veil over it. We, we, we don't want to see it. We can't see it. And oftentimes, when God shows us truth and we try to convey it with such joy and we say, look at what he showed, and put it away. I don't, don't want to see it. But let us not be discouraged because God wants to show his children wonders in his word. He wants you to see what the man of falling out of heaven is really about. He wants to show you where Moses really got his strength from. He wants to show you why Abram was willing to leave good and kindreds and go and follow him. He wants to show you what all the sacrifices are about in the Old Testament. Church, make no mistake, God wants to show us great things in his word. But let us move on because God doesn't just want us to behold great things in his word. As we go to our next fruit tree, we understand that God wants us to store those things in our heart. So God wants us to see great things, but God also wants us to store great things in our heart. Let's stop at Psalms 119 verse 11. He says, I have stored up, I have stored up your word in my heart that I what? I might not sin against you. Let's talk about this. Church, it is one thing to see the treasure in scripture. But it is another thing to store it in your heart. There are so many people making a wreck out of their lives because they neglect to meditate and memorize scripture. And I feel convicted myself in this area because, because I believe that I can do better in memorizing scripture and committing that to my life. I know I could memorize more scripture, but sometimes we get busy with doing other things and I myself do the same. My question to you this morning is, do you want to overcome sin in your life? Do you want to live a more spirit-filled life? Store God's word in your heart. It is only when we store the word in our hearts that we can call it up in a moment's need. Many of you have been in situations where you, had, you needed to call up God's word in a moment's need. This is more than just studying it. I want you guys to understand this. The, the psalmist is talking about more than just studying the word, which is good. 
But he's talking about becoming close friends with the word. Well, the Bible becomes your friend. You may hear a lot of different takes on what being with the what being filled with the spirit means. But I'll tell you this. One thing that it means is that you're filled with the word of God. This is why when we're counseling people, we immediately try to tie their lives to scripture. Because we know that most of their issues are tied to a lack of storage. We find that people have filled their storage spaces in their hearts with all kinds of things. Their storage is filled with what J. Cole thinks, and it's filled with what Dr. Field thinks, and it's filled with what the Chew had to say, and it's filled with what their pastor from sixth grade had to say, and it's filled with what they heard on TBN at 11 o'clock on Tuesday night when the man was selling them magical water. And it's filled with what their professor has to say in philosophy class. And it's filled with what Stephen Hawkins has to say. Everything they're filled with but the word of God. And these different teachings and different leaders are usually misleading them. And so it leaves their lives in confusion and they're discombobulated in all kind of areas in their lives because these people have become authoritative and the word of God has been subjective to that. Don't do that, church. God's word is authoritative and everything else is filtered through it. Now that the things, it's not that you shouldn't listen to other things. It's just that they shouldn't supersede the word of God. That's all. That's all. Now, this is not easy to do, to meditate and memorize scripture. It's not easy. It is not easy to meditate and memorize scripture. But what in life worth doing is easy. Making great music, hard. Forming great art, hard. Building a healthy church, hard. However, those who live successful, triumphant lives are those who hold on to the truth of scripture with every fiber in their body. And when they bleed, they bleed scripture. Scripture has become their very lifeline. And when they make decisions, they consider the word. When they have disagreements in their marriage, they consider the word. When they have issues in their friendship, they consider the word. When they have issues at their job, they consider the word. It is those who have stored up God's word that helps them. Listen to John Piper as he talks about the importance of storing up God's word and meditating on it. He says, if a doctor says... You're very sick, and you may die from your sickness. But if you take this medicine, you will get well, and you will live. And you neglect to take the medicine. Why? Too busy? Pills are too big and hard to swallow? Just, for, just forgetful? You are going to stay sick, and you may die. That's the way it is with sin and spiritual immaturity. If you neglect what God tells you will sanctify you and make you mature, strong, and holy, then you will not be mature, strong, and holy. Reading and meditating on and memorizing and cherishing the word of God is God-appointed way, watch this, of overcoming sin and becoming a strong, godly, mature, loving, and wise person. So if you're in a room, you're like, man, I wish I had the passion like William Tyndale. There's nothing special about him, but that he cherished God's word, and it changed his life. We're always looking for these various things to mature us. Don't look any further than the Bible in your home. So when we hear the old song, come on in the room. Jesus is my doctor. 
he supplies all my scriptures. She wasn't just singing. There was meaning behind that song. Jesus is my doctor. And when I'm going through it, he writes me a scripture for it. And when I'm going through that, he writes me another scripture for that. And when somebody betrays me, he writes me a scripture for that. And when bitterness rises up in my heart, he writes me a scripture for that. There is nothing in God's word that he cannot deal with that I I might. The psalmist says "That that I might not sin against you. Okay, so let's see this. Lord, I store your word in my heart for what? So that the basis is so that I don't sin against you. That's why he's doing it. Because he understands, church, that sin is deadly. I want want that to marinate. Sin is suicidal. One writer says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin will kill you. Sin will send you off. Sin will destroy your family. Sin will destroy community. Sin is not a game. This is why when you talk to people trapped in sin, they are willing to sacrifice so much for so little. I'm like, you're going to give up your marriage for this? You're blind as a bat. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm like, you're, you're an idiot. You are foolish. Many of us if not all of us, can testify that we were in situations like that where we chose in the foolishness of sin over what God had to say. Church, the only defense you have against sin is the word. Paul describes the word as a sword in Ephesians. It is the only defense weapon in the armor of God. Listen to Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All right. So I want to help you understand how to wield your sword when sin is coming your way. Sin is rising up in my heart. How do I, Dexter, now use the word of God in order to put sin to death? Right, because that's what we want to understand, especially believers. We want to know how do I kill sin? I'm tired of sin having the best of me. I'm going to show you how to do it. All right, Hebrews 13:5. Watch this. He says, "Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, said, I will never leave you nor forsake you.' Now watch what He does." For Instagram, Facebook, everything is telling us, love money, love money, love money. Your life will be better. You will feel better. You will feel better. And it's, it's starting to grip your heart. Now, how do, now how do I stop that? I, I want to rise up in me. Watch what he said. If that's not good, it's going to cause greed to rise up in me. It's going to cause selfishness to rise up in me. Watch what he says. He says, instead of loving money, you ought to be content. Well, how do I be content? He says, Call the promise of God to your mind that he said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, it is better to have the God of the universe tell you that he's with you than to have all the money in the world. Money dead at that moment, right? God's raw material is nothingness. He speaks things into existence. You don't get any richer than that. So many of you wish you can do that, right? Whew. 
I'll speak that NIFSCO money bill right. I'll, I'll speak it right now if I could. I didn't tell you to do that. He said, you call to mind the promises of God. He said, he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is how you war against sin with the word of God. When you have God's word stored up in you, there is no devil that can trick your soul to trust in money over him. Church, store up some verses for hard times and for good times. Store up his word so when that lying snake of a boyfriend calls you for Netflix and chill, you will have something. No, that's a word for someone. Get your Netflix cut off if you have to. <laughs> store up in his word, store up his word for that jealous boss. Store up his word for the haters. Store up his word for those who slander your name. Not so he can strike them with lightning, but so that the world may know that you are a child of God and your dependency is not on your circumstance or your situations or your satisfaction is not found in the things of the world, but it is found in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ who is all sufficient. I encourage you this morning to Stir, store up so much word that the U-Haul storage cannot contain it. A through Z storage cannot contain it. You need more word and 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 more word. And you ask God, enlarge my capacity to behold more of your word. You see, at nighttime, I lay my eight-month-old daughter in her crib. And the reason we put her in her crib is because it has rails that keeps her from falling and getting hurt. Lila doesn't realize that if she keeps rolling, she's going to fall and get hurt and can cause some serious damage. But it doesn't matter how much she rolls over because those rails are not going to let her go there. In the same way, God's word, when it gets so deep in you, no matter what you do, it's going to save you from falling into sin. The moment you say, I think I should do this or fall into the devil's trap, the word will rise up in you and say, you know you shouldn't be doing that. Go in the other direction. You know God's word doesn't say it will keep you from falling and hurting yourself. Listen to Jesus. If you abide in me. In my word abides in you. You ask whatever you will, you wish, and it will be done for you. God Almighty said that. My word is in you. You can bank on it. Ask whatever you will, and it will be given to you. Now, I understand something. I don't want anybody getting happy. Up and out here, oh, yeah, buddy. I'm a member of some scripture and start asking for what I always want. No. When the word truly dwells in you, your desire is what he desires. All right. But Jesus says, if my word abides in you, ask whatever you will and I will give it to you. If I can give another baby analogy here. Sorry, I'm in the baby stages. That's going to have to bear with me. My daughter, when she goes to sleep, we have a monitor next to our bed and next to hers. The monitor is there so when she cries, no matter the time of night, mommy and daddy, we're coming. She doesn't have to get up. She doesn't have to say nothing. All she has to do is just cry out, and we're getting up. 
Mainly mommy. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I do get up too. I get up too. I get up too. Nah. I'm repenting right now. Y'all give me a second. Our Father who art in heaven. No, I'm just playing. But the point is, church, in the same way, if God's word abides in you, no matter what time of night, no matter the time of day, your father is coming because he knows what his children sound like. They sound like his word. You said you'll never leave me or forsake me. You said that, that you gave your son up for me. And how with, with him will you not give us all things? His children cry out his word and daddy is coming no matter the time of night because he loves you. He cares for you. He's concerned about you. He is monitoring you all the time. What can cause us to live holy lives? What can keep us from self-destruction? What can allow us to live lives even in the midst of a wicked world? The word of God. Not only does God want us to see his word, store his word, but God wants us to use his word and trust his word. As we go to our next word is a lamp to my feet and a light to what? My path. If you recall Israel's journey... Through the wilderness at night, it was illumined by a pillar of fire. And this pillar of fire would go before them as they marched through the wilderness. In the same way, God's word illumines our path as we journey through in a light to describe God's word. A lamp is used for the night and light shines in the day. Could it be that his word is for our darkness and for our brighter days? Understand that the psalmist helps us to understand that God's word will show us the way to go. We often may get lost in life and not know where to go or how to live our lives. We face many difficult and perplexed situations in our marriages, in singleness, in friendships, in jobs, and even in our own emotions. God's word is able to show us the way. The word is able to shine light on snares before you ever walk into them. The word can expose your idols. A lot of times your idols are in your blind spot. You don't see them, but they're killing you, but you can't see them, which is why I also encourage fellowship. Things you have been putting over God that are destroying your life. The word will reveal issues in your life. Now understand if you're going to get into God's word, it is going to expose you. It will. And at times show you, but this is what I love about God's word. Not only does it expose, it also, it also directs. A lot of people can tell us what's wrong with us, but a lot of people can't tell us where to go and how to be fixed. God's word does both. Now, understand that the Bible is not here to tell you where to get your next job. Or it's not here to tell you who to exactly marry. But it is here to tell you how your character should be and tell you what God expects of you. The Bible imparts enough light for you to know the way to go. It is important we have this light because the world is full of what? It's full of darkness. The world engulfs us with darkness all around. All around. The world will send you down a dead end and off the cliff. All around us, encouragement to sin and be prideful. You pull up your social media quickly, the world is telling you to enjoy and to indulge in darkness. But God has given us his light. And so many people get into church and they never get into God. Now, let me, let me help you explain something. 
You can come to church all you want and go straight to hell. In fact, hell drives a bus past the church every week and it's full of people who thought they knew God, who thought they were walking in the light and they were not. Now, in case you're thinking of someone else, you better be examining your own heart because you will be the first person to send you off. I didn't sent myself off so many times. I'm like, man, I didn't sent myself off so many times. I don't even trust myself. If you want the word to be light to you, you have to study it. You have to study it. You have to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Download, here's some encouragements for you. Download the Blue Letter Bible app and start studying. Grab a study Bible and a few highlighters and go to work. Your Bible should look like a rainbow when you're done. Just highlights everywhere. All right? Just, just tear it up. We'll get you another Bible. Just get in there. Don't, don't just touch the Bible on your way to work so you can go do what you really want to do. Swim in the Bible. Be engulfed by it. Be drenched in it. It's beautiful and glorious things in there. And get you two or three believers and start connecting with them and going over the word. I want to pause here because a lot of times we hear this and we don't do it. I want to encourage you with all, with all my might to find believers and study the word. Do not neglect studying the word of God. Know him. God told the Jewish people, keep this book of the law close to you. Why? Because it's going to direct you and keep you from falling. Okay. So God wants us to see the word. He wants us to store the word. And he wants us to trust the word. How does all this come together? How do we bring this, this fruit grove together, this 176 trees? And may I say, let's bring in all 66 books of the Bible. What is the word of God all about. We have had the chance to taste some of these fruit trees. When we have learned that the word is to be sought after, God opened my eyes. We see that the word is to be stored in our hearts to keep us from sin. We saw that the word will light our path if we trust it and hold on to it. So how does it all come together? I believe God did not just give us a book with a bunch of letters and say memorize this. That's not what I think God is doing here. I think this word is in place so that we may know a person. We may know the God-man, Jesus Christ. So understand this. God hasn't given you a word so that you can remember a bunch of vocabulary. But God is trying to cause you to know him, a person. All right? This is what's coming out of Scripture. This is what's being projected in the Scriptures. Right? Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So what is the Bible all about? The Bible is all about Jesus. Who's really directing our path? It's Jesus. Who's really opening our eyes? It's Jesus. Who are we really storing in our hearts? It's Jesus. And as we read the Bible, we find out that life has a name, love has a name, that joy has a name, that peace has a name, and that name is Jesus, the Word who became flesh. He is 
the entire Bible. In Genesis, he's the seed. He's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud in the fire. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet better than Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge in the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the prophet of the Lord. In First and Second Kings and Chronicles, He's the reigning king. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he's the protector of his people. In Job, he's the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In the Song of Solomon, and some of you going to love this, he's the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, He's the weeping Messiah. In lamentation, he assumes the wrath of God for us. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, he's the stranger with us in the fire. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband even when we run away from God. In Job, he is sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, he delivers us from justice, from the oppressed. In Obadiah, he's the judge of those who do evil. In Jonah, he's the greatest missionary that ever lived. In Micah, he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. There are some people in this room that knows what it is to have your sin cast into the sea of forget. You know you are wretched and doing your own thing and God threw it in the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims the future world peace we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. One day, he's going to reign on this wicked world and crush every wicked thing that has ever lived. In Haggai, he restores our worship. When they pierce it, he prophesies a Messiah pierced in the side. We remember on Calvary when they pierced his side for our sins, he was guiltless. He, he didn't do anything, but he was pierced for your sins. In Malachi, he's the son of right. Oh, bear with me. Bear with me. God, Jesus is all over the Bible. He's the son of righteousness who brings healing. In Matthew, he's the Messiah who is king. In Mark, he's the Messiah who is a servant. In Luke, he's the Messiah who is a deliverer. In John, he's the Messiah who is God in the flesh. I'm so thankful that God came to a dying world, a sinful world. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, I'll still be in my sins. But I don't want to stop there because I found out in Acts that he's the spirit that dwells with his people. And I turned over to Romans and found out that he's my righteousness. And then I turned over to Corinthians and found out that he's the power of God's love. And I went to 2 Corinthians and found out that he's the down payment of what's to come. Glory be to God. He's the down payment. He's the guarantee that we got a future. And then I went over to Galatians and found out that Jesus is my very lifeline. I can't do nothing without him. Through him I move and have my being. I was studying Ephesians and found out that he was the unity of our church. And I went over to Colossians and found out that he holds the supreme position in all things. There's nothing before him. There's nothing after him. For from him and to him are all things. What is life about? It's about Jesus. What is your life about? It's about Jesus. What is your job about? It's about Jesus. What is your family about? It's about Jesus. Some of you may not like it. You may can't stand it, but it don't matter because this ain't your world. This is his world. He's the supreme king of all things. And I went over to Thessalonians 
and I found out that he's a comfort in the most hardest days. Went over to 2 Thessalonians and found out that not only was he a dying king, he's a returning king, which means that he's coming back. And I went to Timothy and found out that he's the savior of the worst sinners. So no matter how wicked you are, no matter how messed up you are, God has room for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. I found out in Titus, he's the foundation of truth. All truth proceeds from him. If it contradicts him, it's not truth. He is the standard of all things. I went to Philemon and found out that he was my mediator. I'm so glad I got someone talking on my behalf because if I was to go before God's throne without a mediator, God wouldn't hear not one word I have to say, but Jesus is my mediator. I went over to James and found out that not only did he save me, but that he's maturing me in my faith. Every day God is growing me what we call sanctification. Went over to 1 Peter and found out that he's my hope in times of suffering. When I'm going through it, I ain't got to look to no job. I ain't got to look to no person. All I got to do is look to Jesus. Went over to 2 Peter and found out that he's the one who guards us from false teaching. There's a lot of jives out here who's selling people a bill of goods, but Jesus protects his sheep went over to 1 John and found out that he's the source of all fellowship. He's the center of the church. Went over to 2 John and found out that he's God in the flesh. Went to 3 John and found out that he's the source of all truth. Went to Jude and found out that he protects us from stumbling. And last but not least, went over to Revelation and found out that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is coming and coming again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, we serve a mighty God. Church, all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. All of Scripture can be summed up in one word. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hebrews says long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory in God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. In other words, God spoke in a lot of ways. But when he sent Jesus, he spoke as loud as he could speak. So that when Jesus forgives, God says, I'm forgiving like that. When Jesus shows compassion, God says, I'm compassionate like that. When Jesus invites tax collectors and sinners to himself, God says, I'm inviting like that. And when Jesus stretches his arms wide for you, God says, I'm loving just like that. So don't look further than Jesus. All I came to say, God, is if you know the word, you know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know God. Know this, church, that William Tyndale did not just have a bunch of words in his head when he was suffering and dying, but he had a person walking with him, and that person was Jesus, who was in God's word. 